Well, there's a lawyer, a wealthy lawyer, who bought a brand new Porsche Carrera GTS. He was extremely excited about getting it. He just wanted all, the, all of the guys that worked with him to know. So he sent really a message to everybody and said, Monday morning, I want you to meet me out front of our building in front of the uh, law firm. And he goes, I got something to show you. So that morning, everybody was gathered around out on the sidewalk and they were looking. And sure enough, he comes up just sporting this brand new Porsche Carrera. And he pulls up and he's revving the engine and he's so proud and people are oohing and on. It's exactly the response he wanted. And he opened the door to get out and when he did, a truck came by and took the door off. <laughs> he was upset a little bit about it. Obviously, he got out and he began to rant and rave and he goes, I can't believe it. How dare this man? Who, who, who would do something to a man's Porsche? And he was so angry. And during this whole time, there was a police officer that was watching this. He was just parked across the street. And, and he saw all this, and he didn't go after the man that really took the door off. He just pulled right behind and kind of pulled up, leisurely got out. And, and this made the lawyer even more mad. He just sat there and he goes, what's the matter with you? This guy took my door off. Look at him. He, he just, he went all the way down. Why aren't you doing your job? Do your job. Right? And he's yelling at the police officer. And the police officer just very calmly just turned to him and just basically said, you know what? You lawyers are all alike. He goes, you're just about your stuff. All you care is the materialistic things in this world. You're so consumed with stuff of this world, you can't even see what's really, really important. And he goes, you're blinded to it. And the lawyer at that point says, I am not blinded to what's important here. He goes, I know exactly what's important. That man just took my door. And the policeman said, and he also took your arm. And at that point, he looks up at him, and the lawyer looks down at his missing arm, and he goes, oh, great. There goes my Rolex. All right. Some people, like, I am terrible at telling jokes. Let's be honest. So th thank you. I was nervous this entire time about just telling a joke because I don't tell jokes well at all. Uh, but, but here is the point. Hopefully you got it. Some people just, they, they see what is true, but they don't see what is ultimately true. And this is true when we come to the Word of God oftentimes. We can come and gather around and study the Word of God and spend some time talking about it and talking about the different truths that are very clear within the text of Scripture. But oftentimes we can walk away and completely miss really what the point of the text is. One of the examples of that, really best examples, is in the Old Testament is the story of David and Goliath. How many times have we heard that passage preached before? And oftentimes it's always about the giants in your life. How to slay the giants in your life, right? And then what we really do is when we understand a little bit more about what God is doing through David, we begin to understand that really David is a picture of a greater Savior to come. That's really what the point is. He's a picture, he's a shadow of one that would come, a Savior that would come that wouldn't deliver us from a big giant man, but would rather deliver us from our greatest enemy, and that is death, the grave, uh, and Satan himself. And so sometimes those things are true, but we're kind of missing the overall point. A great New Testament example would be the passage of Scripture that we have before us. Uh, Jesus stilling the storm. It's a well-known story, but oftentimes I think we miss the ultimate point. And so we want to try to get at that ultimate point this morning. And I want to do it by really just with two points. The first one is this, the test of faith. Here we see a test of faith. Look at verse 22, if you will, follow along. He says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were, filling, they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are 
perishing. So Jesus and his disciples had been working and ministering nonstop up to this point. They'd been going from town to town. Jesus was teaching. He was healing people. The demand of the crowd was, was demonstrative. It was real, and it was exhausting. One of the interesting things we find about Jesus is whenever he's got to get away and whenever he's got to rest from his ministry in the crowds, oftentimes we see him going on a boat and kind of sailing away. Uh, we see this uh, after Jesus had sent out uh, his disciples two by two. If you remember this, they went on to do missionary work and to share the gospel. And when they got back, back they were exhausted. And Jesus told them to get in the boat. They were going to go across uh, the, the sea. And they were going to go to a quiet place in the wilderness just to be able to refresh. And another time earlier in the book of Luke, we saw it when the crowds were pressing in on Jesus. He commanded uh, uh, Peter to get in the boat and to push off a little bit from the shore. So it gave him a little bit of distance between him and the crowd when he needed to rest. And now we see him do it, doing it once again. Amen. If I were you, I, I would say this to your wives afterwards. If you've been trying to convince her to be able to buy a boat, this is what I would do immediately after the service. Just sit there and say, honey, you've been telling me that I need to be more like Jesus. To do so, I need a boat. Okay, that's what we need. We need a boat. What would Jesus do? WWJD, right? And so we would get a boat. This trip, of course, was going to be restful for Jesus, but not for his disciples. As they head across, we, we find out that difficulties begin to happen. Uh, the Bible tells us that the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was lost. If Oh, wait a minute. Wrong story. Sorry. Luke does tell us that the windstorm, thank you for being patient, moms, the windstorm came down on the lake. The windstorm came down on the lake. Now, this is very descriptive and very accurate. Uh, the sea that they're talking about was the Sea of Galilee. It was really located some 700 feet below sea level, specifically 682 feet below sea level, which meant that it got very hot, especially in the summer. And so a lot of, 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 of water is evaporating at this particular point and rising up into the sky. Well, on, on the west and on the east are very large mountain ranges. And those mountain ranges funnel down from an elevation of 8,000 feet all the way down. And a, a, the, the valleys kind of work as kind of a, a wind tunnel where these cold air from the mountains hit this rising warm air of the Sea of Galilee. And when they hit, there are these instantaneous, very violent storms that begin to erupt. And they can kind of come out of nowhere. And apparently this storm was unique. Remember, a lot of these, these, these disciples were fishermen by trade. Peter, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were all fishermen. They owned boats. Even, even after Jesus' ministry, we read in John that they, they had boats to themselves. And, and so what we find is they, they had been on this lake. They had been here before. They had encountered storms before. But this was completely different. Before they could handle the problem that they were facing, here they can't. This is beyond their skill, their own ability, beyond their experiences. They can't deal with them themselves. It's bigger than themselves. It is something that they have absolutely no control over. And how many of us can identify with that? Maybe not in a particular literal storm, but we've been in situations where we feel the same as things come out of the blue. They're more difficult than what we can handle, and we find ourselves in big trouble. And so out of, out of a desperate heart, they cry out to Jesus, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now understand, the repetition there is significant. Master, Master is letting us know that, that these men, they, they, they have lost it. They are out of control. 
This is hysterical at this particular point. They are hysterical at this particular point. Mark 4, verse 38, records the disciples' words as, Teacher, do do you not care for us that we are perishing? So they're actually so desperate, they're actually indicting and condemning Jesus. They're rebuking him for not caring that they're about to go down and they're about to die at this particular point. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to play armchair quarterback and to be able to look at this and go, Man, I can't believe these guys would talk this way to Jesus. This is Jesus, man. Where do you guys get off? But the truth of the matter is, I'm a little bit impressed with them. I'm impressed that it took that long before they actually became desperate. Because I know for a lot of, I mean, it it wasn't until the point they were about to go under. And there are a lot of believers that I know, me included, that I'm a much more off and much more shipwrecked and in a tailspin of fear and unbelief by very small things coming my way. I don't, people sometimes don't even have to hear that their job is lost. They just have to hear that the company's coming back, cutting back, and all of a sudden they're scared. They have enough money in the bank to be able to cover their bills, but it's getting lower than they want, and all of a sudden they, ha- they feel fear and intrepidation. So the truth of the matter is, is oftentimes we don't even need to be in true, actual danger as they were, as the scriptures were, and you and I can still end up finding ourselves in trouble. Still finding ourselves asking the same exact questions. God, where are you? Do you not love me? Do you not care? Are you asleep somewhere? Are you not in control? This happens to every person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, this was a test of the disciples' faith. That's what this is. It's a test of his faith. And quite frankly, if we were to be honest, they failed miserably. Not because they cried out to Jesus in the midst of their need. Please understand the, Lord of, the, the word of God teaches us to bring everything to God in prayer. It's not that. It's the problem that this difficulty did something to them. It drove doubt into their hearts, and they began to doubt the person of Jesus Christ. That is the danger of the difficulties that we go through. Not that we're nervous about it or, or it, causes, it causes us to, to be concerned with what's going on. We're not blind to those dangers around us. But it is dangerous when it begins us to have a wrong view of who the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately is. The problem with these hardships is, let's be honest, is that these hardships are, are, are not optional for the believer. Hardships, difficulties, all different types of areas of things that would cause stress inside of our life. We, we are not exempt because we're believers in Jesus Christ. Some people actually believe that. They, they come to faith in Jesus Christ and they go, now I'm not gonna have any problems anymore. And then they realize there's a whole slew of problems now that they're gonna experience because they are now following Jesus Christ. And this has been kind of the problem here. This particular storm is not like the storm of Jonah where Jonah faces a storm and the, the ship's about to be ripped apart because of his own sin and rebellion towards God. This particular storm that they experience is because they have been obeying Jesus Christ. Jesus told them, get into the ship. We're going to go to the other side for the purpose, obviously, for more ministry. And so they're in it. And so their obedience to God causes them and leads them into this very difficult time and very scary place. We shouldn't be surprised when difficulties come up, uh, 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 towards us as believers. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Do you understand? The problem you're facing, the difficulty you're facing, whether financial, physical, relational, whatever it might be, it's here facing you for one purpose, to test your faith. To test your faith. To find out, do you have faith in Christ? What is your faith in Christ 
like. And he tells them, don't be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you. Difficulties in the Christian life are not strange, rare things. They are common occurrences. They happen to us weekly. They happen to us almost every every day of life in some way or another. James then tells us that not only do we need to recognize it for what it is as a test, and it's, it's common in the Christian life, but he also tells us to rejoice over it. He tells us in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice he, he says when you meet trials of various kinds, not if. This isn't a, hey, man, I'm just hoping that everything goes well and nothing's going to bad happen to me. I'm never going to go through any difficulties. He says when, which means it is going to happen. And, and it's not going to be one trial. It's in the plural. He says various, or he says there, he says, he says trials, that's plural. It's going to happen a lot, and they're going to be all different kinds. That's what he means by various. The Greek word that is actually used here for various in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. It's a vast array. What he's saying is, hey, believer in Jesus Christ, you better not be surprised. You can be living for Jesus, following and doing everything you know to be right. You can be walking with him closer than you've ever walked before. And some of the greatest challenges of life can occur at that particular moment. But you need to be able to consider it joy even when it comes. Now, he's not sitting there going, (laughs) great, my arm's off. This is awesome. This is what I wanted. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is a deep joy when you look past the immediate difficulty and you understand what the outcome of this is going to be. And what he says is so that you may be complete, you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. There's only one person that really matches that. That's the person of Jesus Christ. He says the reason that we have joy, no matter what difficulty is facing us, is because the first moment we recognize that this is a testing of our faith, that's the first thing that we do. We're either going to obey or we're going to disagree. We're either going to accomplish or we're going to fail in the midst of this. The second thing is the purpose for this is for me to become more like Jesus Christ. It's going to purify a faith that has not yet been perfected. And what we understand is that when we die, we're going to be like him. Amen? We're going to be glorified at that point. But right now we're being sanctified. And what this ultimately means to us is that as we're in this particular life, we are going to have all kinds of problems, all kinds of difficulties to shape us into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love what J.C. Ryle says. By affliction, he teaches us many, many precious lessons which without it, we would never learn. By afflictions, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from our world, and makes us long for heaven. And the resurrection morning, we will all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. What we hate right now, what we pray to God to deliver us from, what we pray that God, that we will not go into. All of those things, all of the difficulties you're going through, how matter extreme, God knows it is exactly what you and I need. We would not become more like Jesus Christ unless we went through them. If we didn't be faced, if we weren't faced for them, we would not be transformed in the image and likeness of Christ because it's those things that God is using to shape us. So what we understand, first of all, is this, is the test of faith. Second, It is the call to faith. Look at the second part of verse 24. It says, And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? So unlike the disciples who were completely freaking out, Jesus is resting and catching some Z's inside of the boat. 
And in John, or in Matthew's account tells us that when he finally wakes up, in a very controlled manner, without freaking out, he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And, and what happens is that word rebuke is interesting because the Greek word there is also used, Luke uses it in other passages, to speak of Jesus rebuking demons, leading some scholars to believe that there might very well be a demonic uh, leaning or, or force behind this storm that was sent. Uh, and we understand that, that that could possibly happen. We see it in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Job? When, 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 when Satan comes before God and he says, hey, listen, have you, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, hey, look, if you take things away in his life, he only loves you because you've been so good to him. If you take things away from his life, his health, his family, he will curse you to your face. And so God says, hey, do what you will with him. Just don't take his life. And what do we find? Satan sends a storm, a windstorm that comes and basically blows the house down and inside is his sons and his daughters, and their lives are particularly taken. There does seem to be times that the devil does have some control over the creative order of things by permission of God. So this could possibly be the case, but is it? We, we really don't know. All, what you say, but why would Satan do such a thing? Well, I think we see several times in the word of God when Satan is doing everything he can to disrupt the plans of God. And certainly what he would want to do is give a premature death to the Lord Jesus Christ as he's done on other occasions. For example, with Herod, we understand that who, who do you think was enticing Herod to be able to kill off the Jewish children when Jesus is born? None other than Satan. And we understand that when Jesus was ministering in Nazareth, what happened, he was, that the crowd wanted to throw him over, were backing him over and wanted to throw him off the cliff, but yet somehow supernaturally he just passed on through him and went by. And so the idea is Satan wants to kill Jesus Christ again prematurely because he doesn't want to accomplish all that God has for him to accomplish. That is specifically securing salvation for you and I. But is that true? Is that exactly what's happening? I don't know. It's a great point to be able to show that Jesus Christ has power over the demonic, but that's going to come in the, the next session of this, that Jesus has the power of Satan and the demons. But here the point is this. The point is that Jesus has the power over all of creation. And he tells the wind to stop and it stops. Now, there are some who would sit back and they would begin to argue about this and they, they would say, hey, well, look, uh, the, the winds in that area of the world, they, they leave just as quickly as they come. So it could have just been a matter of fact. It came and it went and now Jesus is taking the credit. But what is unusual is not just the winds that, st that, st that stay still, what is it that cease? It is the waves. And if you live in Florida and you've ever been here during a hurricane, you see the surfers all go out immediately after the storm is over. Why? Because they know that the, that the, wind, or the winds may stop, but the sea still rages. So they want to go up because the surf is going to be up. When Jesus speaks, everything stops and it's quiet. And there's no more raging at this particular point. It's interesting to me when Jesus, after rebuking the wind and the waves, he immediately turns and he rebukes his disciples. And he asks this question, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I love Kent Hughes on this. He points out the irony. The storm did not wake Jesus, but the unbelief of his people did. And so what we find here is a great question for you and I to ask ourselves. Every time we face a struggle, every time we face a problem, here's the bottom line. You're either in a difficulty right now that you're struggling with, you're either coming out of one or you're about to head into one. That's the reality of the Christian life. And the bottom line is, is the first thing we must do is understand that this is a test of our faith. 
We're either going to be obedient and trust God in the midst of it, or we're going to be disobedient and do our own thing. The second thing we need to understand is that God is going to do it for our own good to make us more like him. The third thing we need to ask is, in the moment of that difficulty is, where is my faith? And you know what? It's most of the time going to be self-evident. And how you and I respond to the trial and the difficulty that arises. Let me give you an example. If you sit there and somebody comes and they tell you Monday that your job is over, you no longer have a job, you're no longer going to be receiving a paycheck, If you are devastated over losing that job, disappointed, understandable, devastated, you can't get up out of bed, you can't move forward, you feel that life is over, then what it proves is your faith is in that job. And God doesn't want us to have faith in a job. God gives us the job as a means to be able to provide for us, but he's the ultimate provider. He's the good shepherd. Would you admit that? And so guess what? If that job goes away, our provider can give us another job. he's, He's full of jobs. If we sit back and somebody comes to you and the doctor says, hey, there's nothing left that we can do, that is not the final word. What they're saying is there's nothing we can do. And what do you say? Do you sit there and go, hey, all hope is lost. I can't do anything now. All all I can do is, is write the will. I'm not saying consider this and understand the gravity of the situation, but there is a great physician. And my trust is him. And he has my days numbered. And when he says my days are up, then my days are up. A doctor doesn't determine that either way, one one or another. So I don't lose all hope because I know that Jesus Christ is the one who calls that. Or think about maybe this last year a little bit. Okay, now we're like, hmm, don't get into this last year. And we get into this last year and we begin to think, and there's a political party. And you sit there and say, well, my candidate didn't. Some people's candidate did make it. And, and you know, there's always going to be people whose candidate got in and some that didn't get in. You get that, right? But when your candidate doesn't get in, guess what people will sit back and say? It's all over, bro. It's all over. America is done. You don't understand. This is going to change everything. Do changes come? Absolutely. Are those changes serious? Absolutely. They're serious. No matter who is in office. Absolutely. All of those things. But when you, when you go into a state of depression for six months not being able to look up, not being able to smile, not being able to love people, when you literally are a doomsdayer that thinks all is out of control, and guess what? It may be doomsday. But when you go around with all of that, what you're showing is you honestly think that whoever is ruling in the White House or in government or in Congress, that they are sovereign over this nation. And there is only one who is sovereign over all, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is he who is determined who would rule this nation. And so we struggle with a lot of these different types of things and understandably, but understand that the trial that you're facing or about to face or coming out of is a call for you to have a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. You have to recognize that. You can't be surprised for it. You have to understand why God is using it and why God has allowed it to come your way. So let me tell you this. Let me, let me tell you how this is often preached. Maybe you've heard this, and I don't mean to offend anybody. So if I do, just tell somebody else. All right, so, so here's, I, I was trying to think of a name, and I couldn't think of anybody. But this is how I grew up kind of, kind of hearing this, uh, is somebody come and say, this morning we're going to preach on Jesus stilling the storm. How many of y'all got storms in your life? Amen. 
And I got to tell you, we got some news for you. If you're in a storm, I can tell you exactly how to get out of that storm. Here's three things you got to remember. First of all, you got to remember the promise of God. Did you see in the text of Scripture, Jesus said, we will go to the other side. How many know that Jesus, when Jesus says, we will go, we will go? He didn't say we might go. He said we will go. Not that we have a chance to go, but we will ultimately go. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When Jesus says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Amen? Some of you are actually enjoying this. That's a, that's a thing. Some of you are actually enjoying this. And then you get to the next part and say, it's not, only, it's, it's not only his promise, but it's his presence. Hey, it's one thing if you're in the boat alone, but guess what? You ain't alone. Jesus is in your boat. How many of y'all know that Jesus is in your boat? Amen. And then he's got the power. You know, Jesus got up, the same person that spoke the creation uh, out of nothing. He, he went and he spoke and it, and it still, do you know that God could speak right now and calm all you all, everything that's illing you guys and everything else. And we all sit back and great. And you even love it because all three points started with a P. It was alliterated, right? And you love that. That's a real preacher. He alliterates all his points. They're all P's. And so, so you get all that and we love all that. And here's, let me, let me suggest something. Every bit of that is true. It would not be wrong to preach this text with those truths. It's in there. Jesus did say, we're going to go over to the other side. We trust in the word of God. Amen? He can't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He's not a man that is going to tell you one thing and then do an ultimate other. We know that through the word of God. Jesus is present with us. He tells us over and over I'll never leave you, nor will I forsake you. That is there to secure you and I. We, we get that. We also understand that he has the power to be able to take us out of whatever it is. And here's an even greater power. Even greater power is not to just take you and eliminate all of your problems, but to be able to sustain you through the midst of it. All of those things are absolutely essential in life. But the truth of the matter is that's really not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is actually found in verse 25. Look at it for a moment. He says, and they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and waves and they obey him. What Luke is doing through his own book is for you and I to believe more in this one named Jesus and to know that this Jesus is just not a man. He is God. So look, if you just think of Jesus as a man, Well, who cares what he says and that his presence is with you and that he's got power? What we need to know is whose Jesus' true identity is. He is God, which means he is sovereign over all. That he has the power over all. He can change all. He can sustain you. Nothing comes to you as a beloved child of God that does not first go through him that is for his glory and for your good. This is what we understand for the text of Scripture. And so he's trying to convince us, who is this? This is the question he's asking all of us. He doesn't even answer the question. But I do know that the disciples at this point would have remembered some Old Testament scripture. And in the book of Isaiah, they would have read, fear not for I I have redeemed you. I have called the rivers and they shall not overwhelm you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior, Jesus was God. That's the key to this text. Look, if it's just Jimbo in the boat with you, you're in trouble. If Jesus is not God, if he's, if he's not in it with you, then you're in trouble. You're not in trouble because Jesus is with you. He is in control. He can stop anything at any time from, from, his, from, from keeping his perfect will for you to happen. But you know what? Even if you go through it, he can sustain you, bring you to the other side, and he can support and sustain your salvation, your eternal life, and your relationship with him. 
you know, a lot of people, I think, and going back a little bit to this last year and everything, I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Over the last year or so, I think I've disappointed more people than the previous 25 years of ministry. Every time we got up and said anything, it was a disappointment. Half loved me, half hated me. The next week I'd say something else, the other half loved me, the other week hated me, right? Or all of them hated me. Maybe I'm just being optimistic, I don't know. Because you just couldn't get anything right. Everybody was so opinionated. They had so many different things. But the one thing that I found out over the last year with, with all the politics, with all the COVID, with everything else, one of the things that I found that became so clear to me is people mostly got mad at me because I wasn't as mad as they were. They mostly got upset at me because I wasn't as upset as they were. They were upset and mad at me because I wasn't as frantic as they were. And they were wondering, and here's the only conclusion that they can have, Pastor Mike is ignorant. We have an ignorant pastor. If he knew what was going on, he would be building the same type of bunker that I am. He'd be doing the same thing. But he gets up there and he talks about Jesus every week and he talks about trusting in him. He doesn't know what's going on. I personally believe I have a very clear picture of what's going on. Thank you. But I also understand this. My faith is not in what's going on. My faith is in the person of Jesus Christ who is in control of all things. So that's why we trust him. It's not always about what's happening. It's about who Jesus Christ is and that he is sovereign over all. My question is, is he sovereign over you? He tells the wind and the waves to do and they do. Are we submitting to that same sovereign God as an act of his creation and part of his creation? Do we say, yes, God, I yield my, myself to you in obedience to you? Do we do the same? That is what's so important. I wanna finish with this last quote by David Gooding. He writes, we live in a universe that is lethally hostile. By the way, he wrote this many years before COVID. So this is interesting. He says, within our earth itself, wind, wave, lightning, flood, storm, drought, avalanche, earthquake, fire, heat, cold, germs, viruses, and epidemics, all from time to time threaten to destroy life. Sooner or later, one of them will destroy us. The story of the stilling of the storm is not, of course, meant to tell us that Christ will never allow any believer to perish by drowning or by any other natural disaster. Many believers have so perished. It does demonstrate that he is Lord of the physical forces in the universe, that for him nothing happens by accident, and that no force in all of creation can destroy his plan for our eternal salvation or separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen, amen, and amen. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good man or is he Lord and Savior over all? I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna call you. If you believe he's Lord and Savior, then trust him, trust him. You don't need to panic when everything is going wrong. You know, there should be two major distinctions. There are two major distinctions, the way that the world responds and the way we respond. One is in the area of materialistic things. The world thinks that's all it is. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's not the view of a believer. We're not living for stuff and for material things here. Why? Because we know the best is yet to come. We're investing in a later life. Second thing is this is how a believer in Jesus Christ responds when very difficult, tragic, and hardships come our way. A lost world is frantic and they are grasping. 
Believers in Jesus Christ are not unaware of what is happening. They are not in denial of what is happening. They are just able to be secure because they are secure in the arms of their Savior. That is what makes the difference between those who are saved and said, is Jesus Christ and their belief in him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for this morning. And I thank you for the opportunity to come and to be able to preach a very common, very well-known passage of scripture. And God, I pray that you would use it in us right now. God, I pray that you would move, bringing some to saving faith and bringing others to a greater faith. In your precious name we pray, amen.